Please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. Yep, Exodus chapter 4. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Here in Exodus chapter 4, we are going to read verses 1 to 23. Put everything in context about everything that's happening here. <clears throat> Last week we went over chapter 3 when the Lord had appeared to Moses in the burning bush. We talked about how God had revealed his name to Moses and what that meant and all the things that it implied. And this is still God calling Moses to this specific duty of going to Pharaoh and telling Pharaoh to let his people go, let the people of God go. We had discussed as well how they ended up there, which at the end of Genesis, you have Joseph, that is the son of Jacob. Joseph is the second in power over all Egypt. Joseph's family moves there because of the famine. They settle in the land of Goshen, 70 people in all. And then we talked about how after a period of time after Joseph's death, that there was a Pharaoh who came to power who did not know Joseph and enslaved the people of God. And they've been slaves for 400 years. Moses was one that was not killed as Pharaoh had commanded, as he had commanded if a baby is born of the a baby boy is born of the Israelites, he is to be put to death. If it's a if it's a daughter, she can live. Moses' parents had saved him, put him in a basket, sent him down the Nile, and he was found by Pharaoh's daughter and adopted by her to be her son. So at the age of 40, Moses goes out to the people of God and he sees an Egyptian beating one of the slaves, the Hebrew slaves. Moses kills the Egyptian, tries to cover it up, and then it's found out that uh, he has killed this Egyptian. This was found out by Pharaoh. And so Moses flees for his life. He stays in the wilderness. He has married. He has children. He is with Jethro, his father-in-law, who is the priest of Midian, tending to his flock. This is another 40 years later. He is 80 years old when the Lord calls him. The Lord appears to him at the burning bush, the angel of the Lord speaking to him. And now this conversation is still continuing here in chapter 4 of what the Lord is commissioning him to do. Now, some interesting things that we find here. It's how the Lord prepares Moses, how the Lord is going to prepare him to go to this daunt, to this, this is just a daunting task altogether. I mean, think of how intimidating it would be for a world power such as Egypt in that day to go to that particular king and to demand of him, let the slaves go free. A man who has been in exile basically for the last 40 years, he has to not only go to Pharaoh, but he has to go to the people of God too that he left 40 years earlier. And he has to convince them that he is indeed speaking on behalf of the Lord. And so throughout this, the Lord is preparing him. The Lord is going to equip him with everything that he's going to need in order to go to the people to convince them that he is speaking on behalf of the Lord. He's going to be with Moses as he goes to Pharaoh. He's going to give him a great encouragement to go along with him, and we'll see that. 
But you see what Moses does as well in this passage, which is trying to excuse himself from doing something that God has commanded to be done. He's coming up with all kinds of excuses here. Basically saying to the Lord, yes, I understand what you're saying, but pick someone else. And you see the doubts that he has in his own ability, the doubts that he has even initially of being able to do what the Lord is saying, go do. So he does have those particular downfalls, as we all do. But the very thing that the Lord reiterates to him is the very thing that he reiterates to us, is that he is the sovereign one over the nations. He is sovereign over every event, over every circumstance. He's already decreed what the ending of it is going to be, what the result is going to be. And yet he calls his people to have courage and to follow through with what he has said. And it is a great encouragement to know that, that with what the Lord has commanded of us, to know that he already knows the end result. And he's sovereign over the end result. He's sovereign over the whole process, but he still calls us in faith to obey and to follow through with what he says. This is a very encouraging passage because it really shows us Moses' humanity. A giant of the faith as Moses is, you still see that he's just a man, a man with doubts, a man who's not, who doesn't have apparently a lot of self-esteem here uh, to do the first time what the Lord says. We often get that way as well. When we know what we are to do, what the Lord has commanded to be done, and yet we make all kinds of excuses for ourselves. Sometimes it's not even with fulfilling a particular task, but just obeying the very simple things that the Lord has commanded of us. We like to excuse ourselves. But if the Lord has commanded us to do something and has equipped us to do it by the Spirit of God that He has granted to us, there are no excuses. But you hear that a lot. Well, the Lord understands, and the Lord understands. Does He? I don't think He does. Otherwise, he wouldn't have commanded exactly what he did. So this particular passage of Scripture is going to be one for us to be able to, to be encouraged by and be strengthened by and help, hopefully to realign our focus when it comes to the ministry, when it comes to fulfilling our calling, when it comes to the things that God has prepared for the people of God. So let's look at this passage together. In Exodus chapter 4, we'll read verses 1 to 23. If you would please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Let us give our attention to the Word of God. Then Moses said, What if they will not believe me or listen to what I say? For they may say, The Lord has not appeared to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A staff. Then he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses fled from it. But the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand and grasp it by its tail. So he stretched out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. The Lord furthermore said to him, now put your hand into your bosom. So he put his hand into his bosom, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then he said, 
put your hand into your bosom again. So he put his hand into his bosom again, and when he took it out of his bosom, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you or heed the witness of the first sign, they may believe the witness of the last sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs or heed what you say, then you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on dry ground, and the water which you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. The Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth, or who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. But he said, Please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently, and moreover, behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. Moreover, he shall speak for you to the people, <clears throat> and he will be as much a mouth for you as you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand this staff with which you shall perform the signs. Then Moses departed and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go, that I may return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see if they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. Now the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and mounted them on a donkey and returned to the land of Egypt. Moses also took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we again come before you, acknowledging your majesty, your splendor, your glory that you are the sovereign one of all, and how we take delight in that, and how we rest in that very truth. Father, we pray that the Spirit of God would set before our very eyes the, the greatness of our God, that we would be even more courageous and faithful as the people of God. Bless the preaching of your word, and may it accomplish all you desire in us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> now, not only did we see <clears throat> some amazing things to begin with, uh, reading through the passage, there's probably a number of things that jump out at you, of things that we're familiar with, things that we grew up with, some, some very extraordinary things that are happening. We've probably seen the movie... 
you know, uh, the Ten Commandments with, you know, Charlton Heston, or we've probably seen the Prince of Egypt with our children, and we, we see those images of Moses throwing down his staff and it turning into a snake and all of that before Pharaoh. There's some great things to discuss in this passage, but some implications as well of what is going on, which applies then to the New Testament era and also applies to our day when it comes to the office of a prophet. And what did he do in those particular days? What about the signs and the wonders? What were they for? And we see the beginnings of those things here in this passage. We also see a very interesting thing that the Lord says to Moses before he ever gets to Pharaoh. The Lord has promised Moses, I will harden his heart before he ever gets to Pharaoh. This was not something that the Lord had foreseen happen. He didn't say Pharaoh is going to harden his heart and not let the people go. He doesn't say that. That would be in the context of the Lord foreseeing this happen. Instead, the Lord says, I will harden his heart, and he will not let the people go. And there's a big difference between the two. And the implications of both are very, very different. So looking at the first portion of this set of verses, you have the calling of Moses, You have the identifying of what it is that he's going to do. He's going to go to the people first. He's going to say to them that the God of your fathers has sent me to you. This is the mission at hand, and this is what I'm getting ready to do to go before Pharaoh. Now, this, no doubt, would have been a very difficult task on the part of Moses had not the Lord accompanied him with signs and wonders. For 400 years, this people has been slaves in Egypt by this superpower. Could it have been that throughout the 400 years that many others had had tried to encourage the people to say that the Lord is going to deliver us, saying similar things as what Moses did? And after 400 years, who's going to believe this story? Who's going to believe that This man who has been in exile for the last 40 years who left us, who was actually raised in the Pharaoh's house, all of a sudden you're going to be our leader and you're going to lead us out of here? One theologian said this, Their minds were so oppressed with cares and labors that it was not likely they could raise them up to any such expectation. After 400 years, who, who would have that expectation? Many people have come along and they have said as much, maybe similar things as what Moses has. Who's, who's going to believe that this man is the one to whom the Lord has chosen? So in light of this, and Moses asked the right question, what if they don't believe me? What am I to do then? And you see here the beginnings, really, of the office of a prophet. Because this is the instance in which the Lord is going to raise up a man and going to not only put in his mouth the things that he is to say, but also grant him certain power in order to demonstrate signs and wonders to authenticate what he is saying. This is the first instance that we really have that that description coming up before us of what a prophet is and what a prophet did. And you have that in Moses. So the Lord accompanies him 
with a few signs and wonders. The one, of course, is his staff, one that we're very familiar with. He throws down the staff. The Lord says, yo, what do you have in your hand? Yeah, I have a staff. I'll throw it down. He threw it down to become a serpent. And he's fearful of the serpent, and he, he, he falls back. And what does the Lord say to him? And in this whole process, he is demonstrating his might and his authority over everything and demonstrating to Moses, the one you should fear is not that but me because I'm controlling this. So what does he tell Moses to do? He doesn't say, now get really close to it and grab it by the head so it doesn't bite you. As many of us would, we would try to get close to it, maybe hold it down with something and reach down and grab it by the head. Instead, the Lord says, Grab it by his tail. We know that's not really a good idea. Grabbing a snake by the tail is only going to ensure that it's going to be right there in striking distance of you. But this is what the Lord says for Moses to do. Pick it up by its tail. That would make any one of us a little nervous. You want me to... The tail... You want me to pick it up by the tail? Okay. Now, many of us would probably be hyped up on something, reaching down, trying our best to avoid the head. But he's teaching Moses something as he is commanding him to do this particular thing. Again, he's showing forth to Moses his sovereignty, his power, his control. Because these are the things that Moses is going to have to rest in when he goes before Pharaoh. So, Moses picks it up by the tail. It turns back to a staff. Okay, now take your hand. Put it in your bosom, in your cloak. Pull it back out. It's going to be leprous. Put it back in. Pull it back out. It's going to be healed again. He accompanies him with this particular sign. He accompanies him. Now, this sign would have been a major sign to have shown others for the very fact that leprosy is not something that's curable. And if you pull out your hand and in in it's white as snow, it's, it's, it's not just a little spot of, of leprosy. This is his whole hand. And to be able to show them this, put it back in his cloak, in his robe, bosom, pull it back out and it be healed again, that in itself is a pretty major thing. We look at it maybe very simplistically, you know, just like, well, what's the big big deal on that? Well, if we learn throughout the rest of the Old Testament, when anybody was declared to be a leper, they had to go out of the camp because it was one of those diseases that could spread so easy, very contagious. So this particular sign would have been a very significant one for Moses to have carried to the people and then for the people to be able to see him get some water pour it out and then it turned to blood that in itself would have demonstrated that God was with him and that is the whole point of why the Lord is granting him these particular signs to authenticate that what he is saying is actually from the Lord anybody can come out and say the Lord said to me this and many do. Many still do that in our own day. The Lord told me. But even the people today are not going to say, the Lord told me, and this is the sign that he gave me, this supernatural miracle that cannot be explained in any other way but by the Lord being with me, 
to authenticate this message. There are no such people today. None. This was for this particular instance with Moses and that carried over in the time of Joshua. Miracles are not something that were commonplace in the Scripture. We think it is because, well, we have 66 books and we can read through the whole thing and it takes us some time to do so, but we see a miracle here and we see a miracle here and we see in the New Testament these particular miracles and we think the Bible is just the whole history of man is full of miracles and it's not. The time of miracles and the signs and the wonders were during the time of Moses and Joshua, which lasted around 70 years. During the time of Elijah, Elisha and the prophets, which was a time about 70 years. And at the time of Christ and the apostles, which was around 70 years. Because this is when God is giving new revelation. And this is the qualifier when the Lord gives new revelation. He doesn't just raise up a prophet and say, go say this to the people. He raises up a prophet and he says, go say this to the people and do this, that they will know that it's from me. That's how we know when the Lord gives out new revelation about himself, he authenticates the messenger with the signs and the wonders. That's why when it comes to people today who say such things as they are prophets and they are apostles, one, they don't meet the qualification of apostle to begin with because they never obviously seen the Lord Jesus. They weren't alive during his ministry and they definitely weren't called by him because their theology is just terrible. So, they're not even qualified to be an apostle to begin with. They're definitely not prophets because they have no signs and wonders that are signs and wonders that people can actually verify to accompany them. So there are no such people. Not today. And the reason being is because the Lord has said everything that he needs for us to know about faith and life within the canon of Scripture. And there is no need for further revelation because the fullest revelation that God ever gave was in his Son. And those that came after him recorded what he said, recorded what he did, recorded what he taught, and this is what we have in the New Testament. In the culmination of all things, by those that were closest to him. You see the beginnings of that here. The calling of the prophet, a man who, as we're going to see, is not, is not a very confident man. He's not one that you would look at and say, that's the guy. Based on what he's getting ready to say to the Lord, he's not very bold. I mean, here he flees from Pharaoh to begin with. Just as soon as he even thinks that Pharaoh knows about him killing the Egyptian, he's gone. This is a man who has flaws. This is just a man. But a man to whom the Lord is speaking to in order to encourage his heart to do the very thing that he is commanding him to do. And this is the, this is the thing. When the Lord commands you to do something, he has equipped you to do it because of the Spirit of God who lives within you. The Lord doesn't say, do this, and then you be unable to do it. The things that the Lord commands of his people are things that we can do because primarily, without question, because of the Spirit of God who equips us to do it. That's why you have the power to do what God has commanded you because of the Spirit who resides within you. 
and the Spirit is going to embolden Moses in his time of great need. So he calls the prophet. What does he say to the Lord? He says, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So here's his first excuse. I'm not a good speaker. Now, some people would look at this and and say, well, there's a couple possibilities. One, either Moses had some kind of a speech impediment, that he wasn't confident in himself to do it. But the very thing that you find, not only in Exodus, in Numbers, and in Deuteronomy, you find him speaking a lot. So he is capable of doing it. Some would say perhaps this is an exaggerated humility, as we see um, others within the Scripture saying similar things, demeaning themselves. Uh, Samuel did, David did, Hazael did, Solomon did, Paul. Probably Paul is the one who we will be more familiar with when he says of himself, even though he's probably the greatest of all the apostles, he says, I'm the least of all the apostles. Or he says of himself, out of everybody else, I'm the chief of sinners. So it's demonstrating kind of an exaggerated humility. Some would think that, perhaps. But regardless if it's exaggerated humility or he's not confident in his own speech, he doesn't speak eloquently, whatever the case is, it's still not satisfying to the Lord. Because here's the Lord's reply to him. Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? And that's an important thing to recognize, too. When it comes to those who are deaf and mute and blind, why are they that way? The Lord is making claim. It's me who does this. Why? Because whatever is going to bring him the most glory, that's what he's going to do. We see that in the New Testament, how the man who was born blind for 30 years or whatever it was, how Christ healed him, and it was for the glory of God that it happened. A guy that I know, uh, who I've known since I was a young teenager, about four years ago, had diabetes. And about four years ago, he went blind. He's maybe three, four years older than me, maybe five, something like that. And now he's blind, completely blind. And yet, his praise and his honoring of the Lord has not stopped one bit. And in fact, it has enhanced those that have been around him. For they too, to praise and honor the Lord. But think of the implications of what he's saying here. <clears throat> I'm not good at speaking, so I'm probably going to mess it up whenever I'm giving it to Pharaoh. And the very things that the Lord says is, who makes man mute? Who makes him deaf? Who makes him blind? It's him. So the Lord is in control over the ears and the eyes and the mouth. So for Moses to say whatever he you know, is commanded to by the Lord, 
It's the Lord who turns on the ears over here to listen. It's the Lord who does these particular things that the Word of God penetrates to the heart. This is the Lord who does this because He is the one who is in control over it all. So the implications of what He is saying to Moses is, you don't have an excuse because I control all these things. There's no excuse. We make excuses a lot. Why we don't do exactly what we know to be right. Why don't we? Well, Lord, you know my circumstance. You know what's going on in my life. You know why I'm not doing exactly what you have clearly and plainly said. You know. And I know you understand. I don't find anywhere within the scripture where the Lord says, it's okay to disobey me when you think that I will understand. There is no such verse. Again, the Lord does not command us to do things that we are incapable of doing because the Spirit of God enables us to do them. And our circumstances don't determine whether or not we obey the Lord or we don't. Our circumstances are there in order to to further us along in our growth in Christ. Our circumstances are there so that we lean on the Lord and we depend more on the Lord, not to hinder us and say, okay, because this is going on in my life, then I'm going to take a step back from everything else and I'm not going to do exactly what I know that I should. That's not there. It doesn't work for us and it didn't work for him. He even says, but he said, please, Lord, now send the message by whomever you will. And the implication of what he's saying is, is, Yeah, I get all that, but still, send somebody else. That's really what he's saying. This time, instead of the Lord understanding, the anger of the Lord burns against Moses. There is no understanding here. There is no, I get it, Moses. You don't feel equipped to do this. I get it, you don't. You don't feel like you have the the courage and the strength to do what I'm commanding you to. So maybe we'll just go to plan B then, and you can go back and tend your father-in-law's flocks, and I'll just choose somebody else to do it. Instead, the anger of the Lord burns against Moses because he is defying the living and holy God. That's what he's doing. He's defying him or trying to. But even in the anger of the Lord against Moses, he still extends grace to him. And he extends grace in this way. Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently. And moreover, behold, Behold, he is coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You are to speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and his mouth, and I will teach you what you are to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he will be as a mouth for you, and you will be as God to him. You shall take in your hand the staff with which you shall perform the signs. 
So here's what he does for him. He says, you can take your brother, your brother Aaron, and he will be your mouthpiece. You're going to be to him as God. And what does that mean? It means the Lord isn't going to speak directly to Aaron. The Lord's speaking to Moses. And what the Lord has said to Moses, Moses is going to tell Aaron, say that. So that's what he's referring to. You're going to be to him as God, and he's going to be your prophet. That's basically what he's saying. And that's all that's meaning. He's not saying anything, you know, uh, of any him or his brother being divine or any, any of that other stuff that people would, would point to. This is a grace to Moses because he's going to have somebody with him. Somebody to come alongside him. His brother out of everybody. A brother that's actually going to be seeking after him because he says to him, he's coming out to meet you. The Lord had put it into the heart of Aaron back in Egypt to go find his brother Moses. So he's going to come out and meet him. And the two of them will go speak to the people. And the two of them will go speak to Pharaoh. So Moses is not by himself. And he's going to be emboldened in everything that he says to the people and everything that he says to Pharaoh because God has graced him with another. And you see in that not only a, a grace of God for, for Moses, but you see how it is that you can be an encouragement to somebody else as Aaron was to Moses out of everybody. You think of Moses, giant in the faith, and yet Moses needed encouragement, and so the Lord brought in Aaron. For Aaron to be that encouragement to him, to be that source of strength to him. If you have somebody in your life that comes alongside you and that can, that can encourage your heart, then that is a grace of God that he has provided for you. Somebody that you can lean on. Somebody that, that is there for you to say, we got this, because the Lord is with us in this. To come alongside. And you know, that's something that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks in the Gospel of John, of how the Holy Spirit comes alongside. He comes alongside us and He encourages us, right? And we do that for each other as the people of God in whom the Spirit dwells come alongside each other. And you see what kind of an effect that that can have for another. Now, he sends Moses to Jethro, his father-in-law, to get permission from Jethro to leave, to go back to his people. And Jethro doesn't try to hinder him. He says, go in peace. Then we find this. The Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. The task is daunting to begin with. Moses is fearful. But the Lord has already taken care of a few things in order to help him. The ones that were seeking your life I've already taken care of. This is going to be a new king that perhaps you haven't met yet. This isn't going to be the same one that was seeking your life beforehand. 
And you think of that. I mean, how the Lord is, is just being so kind and gracious to Moses to do these particular things in order to lift his countenance even more. Of how the Lord does things for us in our life to lift our countenance up to perform our duty. So, upon hearing these things, God has already prepared the way. It's still going to be an, an intimidating event and circumstance because he's got to go back to all these people and say, thus says the Lord. Then he's got to go to Pharaoh and say, thus says the Lord. And not only does he go to Pharaoh wondering perhaps how this is going to turn out, the Lord goes ahead and tells him how this is going to turn out. He says to Moses, I'm going to harden his heart. So already, before Moses even gets before Pharaoh, or goes even before the people, the Lord already tells him, this ain't going to work out the first time. Because when you do it the first time, and you go to him and you say these things, he's not going to do it. And he's not going to do it just because he's stubborn. He's not going to do it because I'm going to harden his heart so that he doesn't do it. Think of that. A lot of times we go before other people or we, we have something that we're, we're trying to take care of and we're a little nervous, we're anxious. How's the end result going to be? What's this person going to say when I, when I go before them, when I, when I speak to this people or whatever? Well, the Lord says he's not going to do it because I'm going to ensure that he's not going to do it. I'm going to harden his heart. And when we talk about the Lord hardening his heart, the Puritan Matthew Poole, he talks about how the Lord is going to remove the grace which alone can make a man's heart soft, flexible, or pliable. He goes on to say this, as the sun hardens the clay by drawing out of it the, that moisture which made it soft, or by exposing them to the temptations of the world or the devil, which meeting with a corrupt heart are apt to harden it. As the Lord, or <clears throat> as, as the sunlight draws out the moisture out of the ground, this is the Lord drawing out any grace, is the way that Matthew Poole had uh, said it. Any grace that would make his heart soft or flexible or pliable, as he says. What are we to make of this? Because this is a great source of debate. And the, one of the reasons why we are going over this particular text this evening is for this specific reason. Because this is going to be repeated by the Apostle Paul in Romans 9. And this is a problem passage for those who are non-reformed people. Yes, it's a problem passage for the Reformed people too because there needs to be a correct understanding that we can give a correct interpretation of what this is meaning and who's responsible for this. This is not just said here. It's said in chapter 7, verse 3, and this is the Lord saying, I will harden his heart. It's repeated in chapter 7, verse 3, chapter 9, verse 12, chapter 10, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 20, chapter 10, verse 27, chapter 11, verse 10, chapter 14, verse 4, and chapter 14, verse 8. These are the times in which the Lord says, I will harden his heart. 
the Lord to do this. This has some direct implications to how we view the sovereignty of God. Because it brings to our minds whether or not God just foresees something and then responds to it, or God has planned something, therefore it happens. So how do we view that? Because it has a, an impact on, on evil acts, on evil itself. How does God work through these things to bring all of this about? Well, we talk about primary causes. We talk about secondary causes. Sometimes the Lord is the primary cause of something. You see Him working and you see His, act, His, His power in action. And then sometimes He works in secondary causes. Like who? Satan is a great example of how the Lord uses a created evil being to do exactly what He wants to be done. Some people would say, well, yes, God is sovereign over evil in the world. He's sovereign over the evil acts in the world because it's the Lord who is sustaining that person in those particular moments in order to perform the act. He's not withholding any action from them or any power that they can't do it. He's still sustaining them and supplying to them the energy that they can perform their evil acts. So God is sovereign over it, and yet the person is responsible, and it was their choice to do it. It's like... No, that's not it either. Here's what MacArthur had said. He said, God does more than simply give the energy to second causes to do something. He directs the actions of the second causes to his intended end. And this way, God, not man, is in control. Pretty simple, isn't it? The way he says it. He says... God is, oh, excuse me. He says, the arrangement is never that man initiates an act and that God joins in after the initiation. God provides not energy in general, but actual energy to do specific acts in his decree. So here's what he's saying. He's saying the very thing that we were talking about a moment ago. He's not saying or that that Pharaoh has started to harden his own heart. And so as a result of the, of the Pharaoh already beginning this process, then the Lord responds and hardens it even further. In this way, it's man who initiates the act, and God is the responder. But God is not the responder. God is the initiator. This is where it gets difficult for a lot of people to Embrace this. But why would the Lord do this? That's the question. Is he violating Pharaoh's will by hardening his heart? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Because everything that the Lord is doing in Pharaoh is exactly consistent with the nature of Pharaoh. He is only sinful. He desires to do evil. He is wicked. And so for the Lord to harden his heart to do something over here that is itself an evil act is not inconsistent with Pharaoh's nature, but in absolute agreement with it. So he's not violating his free will to make him do something that otherwise he wouldn't do or wouldn't want to do. It's exactly in line with his nature. But why did he do it? 
So here's what the Lord says to Moses in Exodus chapter 7, verse 3. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. This is why he did it. So that he would multiply his signs and his wonders in the land of Egypt. This is what Paul is saying in Romans 9. For this reason I raised you up to show my power. This is why this is happening. Now, other people will come up with various ideas of what, what has transpired here and how the Lord had acted in this. And all of this is just trying to get the Lord off the hook for being responsible for this. But if the Lord is going to say ten times, I hardened his heart, then I'm sure he's not afraid to acknowledge his responsibility in it. One person says this, that God works through special providence by directly planting certain thoughts and mental states into the minds of individuals. So what he's meaning is, so here's how the Lord works. As Pharaoh is hearing Moses, perhaps, and Moses is saying, let my people go or this is going to happen, the Lord implants a thought into Pharaoh's mind. And here's some of the things that this guy comes up with. He said it is possible that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in, in a similar way, doing these very things. Via divine intervention, certain thoughts may have flooded his mind. Examples of what a great loss of free labor it would be to lose these Israelites. Or what a laughingstock he would be when the other nations and peoples heard a bunch of slaves bested him. God could have made sure Pharaoh would think of these things at just the appropriate time when he is weakening and about to let the people go. So here's how they're trying to come up with an excuse of what the Lord's doing. The Lord just plants certain thoughts in his mind at the right time to make sure that he doesn't let the people go. And yet they will go actually and say, Sometimes the desired decision is not made. So sometimes this doesn't work. It doesn't work with free creatures, according to them. Norman Geisler, who is very anti-Calvinist, anti-reform, here's what he says. God did not harden Pharaoh's heart contrary to Pharaoh's own free choice. The scriptures make it very clear that Pharaoh hardened his own heart they declare that Pharaoh's heart grew hard, that Pharaoh hardened his heart, and that Pharaoh's heart grew hard and the more God worked on it. Again, when God sent the plagues of the flies, Pharaoh hardened his heart. This time, also, the same phrase or phrases are repeated over and over. While it is true that God predicted in advance that it would happen, and he references Exodus chapter 4, verse 21, and did you hear how he said that? While it is true that God predicted in advance that it would happen, nonetheless, the fact is that Pharaoh hardened his own heart first, and then God only hardened it later. Further, it was God's mercy that occasioned the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. For each time he pleaded with Moses to lift the plague, he was further confirmed in his sin by adding to his guilt and by it easier for him to reject God the next time. 
So here's what Norman Geisler is saying. Pharaoh hardened his own heart first. Then the Lord responded to harden his heart. The Lord had predicted that it was going to happen, therefore it happened. And he references the verse that we're just reading of chapter 4, verse 21. But that's not what the Lord said. The Lord didn't say, I know he's going to harden his heart, and he's not going to do this. The Lord said, I'm going to harden his heart. The Lord had already made a direct statement of what he was going to do before Moses ever got there. Of what he would do. Not what Pharaoh's going to do. What he's going to do. So again, when we're looking at passages like this, God is not the responder to man's sovereignty. Man responds to God's sovereignty. Period. And as far as free choice and free will and all of these things that we're reading of, we do exactly what is consistent with our nature. Sinful people, the unregenerate, the lost, do exactly what is consistent with their nature. They are fallen. They are wicked. They are inclined to evil. And so they make choices. Absolutely. They can choose to do something. They can choose not to do something. But they cannot make a choice that is contrary to their nature. So, when they hear the preaching of the gospel, they hear it and they can say no. Because it is contrary to their nature to choose the ultimate good. That's why the new birth is absolutely necessary for anyone to receive Christ. It has to be that you're, giving, you're given a new nature with a new set of desires in order to choose the ultimate good, which is Christ himself. Otherwise, it will never happen. So the choices that we make now as believers are consistent with our nature. We're a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. We have put off the old man. We have put on the new man. All this language that is used in the scripture to now that we desire to do the things of God. We desire to obey. We delight in these things, whereas before we didn't because God has done a work within us and changed our nature. And so our desires are different. Our emotions are different. Our will is bent to do what is good and right. So we do make choices, but our choices are bound by our nature. One theologian said this, just as a, a bird with a broken wing is free to fly but can't, so man who is unregenerate is free to come to Christ but can't. Now, Pharaoh is is not the initiator. He is responding to what God is doing on him. And so he does harden his own heart, as the Scripture tells us, absolutely. But he only hardens his heart after what God has done first. And all of these things are absolutely consistent, and the Lord does it to show his power. What is he showing? John Piper writes this, The Lord hardens Pharaoh 
so that he may multiply his wonders. He multiplies his wonders to put Pharaoh in his place, show the Egyptians that he is the absolute Lord, establish himself as the center of Israel's worship for generations, and make a name for himself in all the earth. So in the act of what God is doing, he is establishing his glory. Not just among his own people that are viewing everything that he's doing, but he's establishing his glory even among a pagan people such as those that are in Egypt to demonstrate to them who is the Lord. Remember, Pharaoh asked that question, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Well, the Lord is saying, I will show you. And so the Lord is making a name for himself, demonstrating his power over all the gods of Egypt, demonstrating himself to be the center of, of Israel's worship. For generations to come, as Piper said, make a name for himself in all the earth. This is why the Lord, the Lord is doing these particular things. This is why he hardens Pharaoh's heart. He doesn't just see an opportunity. Well, since Pharaoh's going to harden his heart, I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to take that opportunity in order to do these things over here that perhaps if he makes the right choice that I can really show my, myself to be the Lord of all the earth. Does that make any sense to attribute that kind of thinking to a sovereign and holy God? No. Instead, the Lord is saying, I'm going to raise you up. I'm going to use you. And this is what I'm going to do in order to ensure that my glory is seen throughout all the earth. So when it comes to the subject of Pharaoh, is Free will was not violated because everything that happened was consistent with his nature. And it was initiated by the Lord. Not initiated by him, Pharaoh. Initiated by the Lord to show his power. So in all of that, as he is telling Moses these things, he is showing Moses, one, I'm the one who calls you and I'm equipping you to do exactly what I want you to do. I'm gracing you to bring others into your life in order to help strengthen you and to strengthen each other to do this. No excuse is going to be satisfactory to do exactly what I've commanded you to do. And rest assured, I've already declared their end result. It's not unknown to God. It's not an unsure thing. He says, do this, and I've got this over here. I'll take care of this area over here, the end result and the means by which I am bringing the end result, you be part of the means and be faithful and be courageous and be bold to do exactly what I'm saying. And here's where the trust comes in on the people of God. Does God know what he's doing or does he not? That's where it comes down to. When God says for us to do this, whether it's to declare the, the gospel to the lost, whether it's to structure worship in the way that we find within the scripture, coming together, studying, loving one another, holding each other accountable, all the things on and on we can go within the scripture. When the Lord is saying these things, he's not saying, now you can do these things until the culture changes, and if the culture changes, then, then maybe we can, we can finagle a little bit. Oh, the sovereign God says this is true in every generation of what I'm commanding. And it's true in every generation that you can carry these things out because it's the same Spirit of God that
that is equipping Moses, the same Spirit of God who is in Abraham, the same Spirit of God who is going to be in men like David and in the judges and in all of those that God used mightily throughout the Scriptures. It's the same Spirit that is in you that has equipped you for the work of ministry to fulfill your calling and to be in obedience to your Lord, to be faithful. And we don't have an excuse. We can, we can deceive ourselves to think that the Lord understands and we only say that in order to try to justify whatever it is that we're not doing. But we have no excuse. Our sovereign God has called us to be lights to the world. A city set on a hill. A city of lights that can't be put out. To be light in a dark world. Let our light so shine before men that they would see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Bear much fruit and so prove to be disciples of Christ. These are things that the scripture has told us. And dear friends, it is needful on our part to trust what he says to be true. And to know that what he's saying is the best option. There's, not an, there's nothing better. There's not a better option than what the Lord has already said. What we think to be the better option is only rebellion. So let us fulfill our calling to delight in doing it, to trust in the Lord, to know that He has equipped us with exactly what we need to do it. He has graced our lives with each other in order to help us along, to come alongside one another to do it. He's already declared the end result. It's not unknown to him. So everything that he's saying to do is working towards that intended end of what's going to bring him the greatest glory. And we get to take part in that. We get to be the means in which the Lord brings history to its intended end pretty amazing that the Lord would use mere creatures like us to do it. But let us be faithful then. Faithful to your calling. Faithful to one another. Faithful to our Lord. Be bold and courageous. Let's pray together. Holy Father, we give you honor tonight that you are indeed the sovereign one. You move the heart of the king like a channel of water any way you wish. Your word tells us that you do whatever you please in heaven and on earth. Your word tells us that none can thwart your hand or say to you, what have you done? Your word tells us that you've declared the end from the beginning. That you work all things after the counsel of your will. Father, let those truths from your word penetrate our hearts to ingrain deep in us that we remember these things and that we, we, we rest in these. Father, we are fearful at times. We're fearful of man, fearful of circumstances, events. Whatever things are going on in the, in the nation, in the culture, at times we're fearful. But let us recognize, Father, that you are the one to be feared because you are in control over it all. 
You are the one in whom we rest, in whom we delight. You're the one who grants us peace when we look to you, when we rest in your sovereignty, having confidence in you. Father, do a mighty work within us to bring these things out in our lives, that we live before you in a way that honors you and honors who you are and honors what you've commanded of us. Do a mighty work, Father, by the Spirit of God. May you ever be glorified in your people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for your attention, and you are dismissed.